Just before we turn to our scripture reading this morning, the pastors and deacons have asked me to make a brief but a very important announcement. Just uh, a year ago, we uh, went to a new plan of organizing all of the various areas of service that help us operate on Sunday and Wednesday nights under a number of teams. We have seven different teams, and we ask people to sign up uh, on those teams for just a year. It's not a lifelong commitment, and that year is just about over. We have lots of new people with us, and we'd like to give you the opportunity to serve on one of those teams. Out in the lobby uh, near the entry doors, there are two large sign-up sheets with the various teams listed and places where you can sign up if you'd like to help. We're very thankful to the Lord that we have such a serving congregation. And uh, it's been, uh, the, the team concept has worked very well. It's saved, actually, a lot of work so that most of us can spend much more time worshiping and less time having to take care of all the various needs of making things operate on a Sunday. <coughs> so the teams are worship set up, which comes in early Sunday morning to help set up chairs and so forth. If you're interested in helping with that ministry, you can see Dave Owens or Patrick Rowe, or you may talk to me. Our nursery team is large and needy, and under the direction of Elizabeth Byrne, you may speak to Elizabeth about that. Our AV team is under the direction of Dave Reed. Our worship team is Jonathan Poland. If you'd like to help in that regard, you can talk to Jonathan. Our Wednesday night children's ministry is under the direction of Chris Houston, and you can see Chris for that. Our contact desk, our connect desk, is directed by Linda Skoltons, and our Sunday school is directed by Larry Reed. All those names and teams are listed on those sheets out on the lobby. If you'd like to help in that regard, we'd be very grateful, and you may sign up for another year. If you're already on a team and you want to remain on that team, just stick your name out there, and we'll be happy to keep you. If you're new and have questions, talk to any of the people I've mentioned, or please see me, and I'll be happy to direct you to the right person. Very thankful to the Lord for so many willing servants. Now, our scripture reading this morning at the beginning of this Advent uh, series comes to us from Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses. If you have one of these Bibles from the table in the back, it's on page 573. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God now as... We read together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice over you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless, <clears throat> bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you uh, this Christmas season. I hope you guys are already starting to ramp up and get excited about Christmas. It is a beautiful time. If you're here this morning as a guest of Ashley's because you're here for her baptism, we especially want to welcome you. We're glad to have you. Um, baptism Sundays are always fun because lots of, lots of people are able to come and to see such a beautiful demonstration of God's powerful grace. And so we're excited to celebrate that in a few minutes. But this is the Christmas season, and it is a, it is a great time for us to reconnect with family and friends. Um, it is a beautiful time. It's a, there's just something naturally heartwarming about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I'm not really sure how you roast a chestnut on an open fire, but it sounds cool. Um, but I do love to sit around a fire, and I love to gather, read a good book, sit around a fire, and enjoy the Christmas season. And the primary reason why we celebrate uh, Advent, or the coming, Advent means coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus, is because we want, he is the focus, obviously, of this season. And so we are starting, kicking off this morning, an Advent series, which will run all the way through the month of December, where we are going to be unpacking the names of Jesus from Isaiah chapter 9. So we want to see Jesus this morning, so let's pray. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and ask God's help as we uh, look into his word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for every person that's gathered here. Thank you for your mercy in bringing us to this place. And I pray that as we come now to your word, that you would open our hearts to this great truth that we celebrate this Christmas. And I pray that the unfolding of your word would be real and meaningful to us all. And I pray that we would go out from here with great joy and celebration in our hearts for the gift of your son, for unto us... A child has been born. Unto us a son has been given. So, Father, magnify your son now, I pray, through this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those who don't know, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as I said, during this month, we are going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, really verse 6, in these four names of Jesus. And we want to do this in, the, in this month to consider specifically the qualities and characteristics of Jesus. Sometimes we don't stop and think about what is Jesus like? What are his qualities? What are his characteristics? And, and all of that is embedded really in these names of Jesus that are found here in Isaiah chapter 9. And the reality is, is that when we know and begin to understand who God is or who Jesus is, that should have a transformative effect on how we live. There's a direct connection there. If we know the truth about God, who it is, it should show up in how we live. It should affect our lives. Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, uh, develops four life-changing truths about God from Psalm 62, uh, verses 11 and 12. And in Psalm 62, actually says one thing. Here it is. It says, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. 
power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And from those verses, Tim Chester talks about four truths of God, his greatness, his glory, his goodness, and his grace. And he calls those four G's, four G's. Now, these four G's parallel very nicely with where we're going in this series for the next month because we're looking at these names of Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And you think about that. Jesus is good, Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is great, Mighty God. Jesus is glorious, Everlasting Father. And then you have Jesus is gracious, obviously Prince of Peace. And so those work very nicely together. And those truths have great, profound ramifications for how we live our life. God, this is in essence, let me give it to you in a summary form. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God created all things. He sustains all things. He's in charge. He's got everything under control. And if, it, if that's the case, then I don't have to worry. I don't have to get up in the morning and, and try to have control over everything. I don't have to be a control freak. I don't have to uh, have my hand in everything. I can totally just let go. I can trust God in the situation because God's great. He's in control. Or consider the glory of God. How about this one? God is glorious, so we don't need to fear other people. We don't need to be concerned about approval of man. The answer really to the fear of man is the fear of God. If you fear God, if you respect him, if you worship him, if you trust him, then you are not concerned really with people's opinions about you. If God has forgiven you, if he has reconciled you to himself, then it really doesn't ultimately matter what anyone else thinks about you. So that's a great truth. God is glorious, so we don't need to fear others. Thirdly, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Sadly, you and I spend our time trying to prove ourselves. We try to uh, we try to show why we're deserving of what we have. We want to prove that we are good people, that we have done the right things, that we are successful. And so we spend our time and energy and money trying to prove ourselves. But since Jesus lived and since he died and since he rose again to pay for our sins and since he made us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, which means there's nothing I need to prove to anyone. So because God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. And then the last one is God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere for happiness and satisfaction. Do you believe that? If God is good, if God is ultimate good, if God is the chief good in the world, then we don't have to look anywhere else for happiness or satisfaction. He's care, he cares for us. He counsels us. And it also means we don't have to look anywhere else for guidance because God is good. So these are the four G's. God is great. We don't have to be in control. God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Now, that's where we're going to be kind of headed for the next month in this series. And I want to focus our time this morning on verse 6 and this truth that Jesus is good. He is our wonderful counselor. All right, so let's begin with this thought this morning. Names are important. Names are important. Uh, it says here, his name shall be called. So when we walk around, we come to church and we say, hey, Brad, what's up? Or, or Jim, how you doing? Uh, there's a personal connection that's established with a name. When you see somebody and you call them 
by their name, it means something. There's a personal connection that's made. Right, Randy? It's a personal connection. We get to look at somebody, we call them by name, and they feel something about that. Well, this week the Huffington Post uh, ran an article about the most popular names of 2014 for boys and girls. If you were going to name your child, if you had a child tomorrow, and you were trying to think of a name at the last minute, um, you would, what name would you choose? Well, the most popular names in 2014, what do you think they are? Let's talk about the boys first. Boys' names. The most popular boys' name of 2014, uh, I don't know if you have any guesses, is actually Jackson. Jackson was number one. Number two on the list was Aiden, and number three is Liam. So we actually have a, we have a Jackson here. We have a we used to have an Aiden. Aiden is gone. We have a Liam, um, and so we have those names represented here. Uh, think about girls' names. The most popular girls' names. Number one was uh, Sophia. We just had a Sophia born. Uh, Emma is number two, and Olivia is number three. I was actually thinking about this list. That's interesting because the Joneses and the Burks are doing quite well because they both have one of each. And so that's quite nice. And Elizabeth. Yeah. So we, we have lots of, lots of uh, beautiful names in our church. God has blessed us with all these beautiful children that we have. And so what's interesting about names, though, is that Marshall McLuhan, the great social commentator, once said... That the name of man, when, when man, when, sorry, he says this, the name of a man is a shocking blow from which he never fully recovers. It's kind of interesting because some people are named uh, names that when they get older, they must be embarrassed that their parents actually had the audacity to name them that. Um, it's kind of sad. If, if you ever looked at some of the names of celebrities, uh, celebrities in uh, society, it's amazing what some of them name their kids. Edge from U2, the band U2, named his uh, child Blue Angel. Uh, Bono, from the same band, obviously lead singer, named his daughter Memphis Eve. Uh, We're not even going to go there about where he got that name. The actor Rob Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W, named his daughter Two, T-U. So her name is actually Tomorrow. I don't know what these people are thinking. Um, It's sad, but... Anyway, I think it's safe to say that names are important. But believe it or not, they're not nearly as important in our culture as they were in biblical times. Names always mean something in biblical times. And God gave some names to his people. Think of some examples. The clearest example in the Bible, and maybe you can think of, is Abraham. What was Abraham called before he was Abraham? He was Abram. He was Abram. Or Avram, which meant father. But God changed his name Avram to Avraham, which means father of many. Or think of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. His name was changed to Paul. So names were very significant. Proverbs 21, 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. When people hear your name, they think some things. When I say your name or someone says your name... They immediately bring up images in their mind, where you work, or maybe what you do, your personality, your values, your hobbies, your work ethic, or many other things would come to 
mind about that person. You say, that person's lazy. That person is really fun to be around. That person is always grumpy. You know, something comes to your mind when you say someone's name. Names are important. But obviously, the name of God is most important. Jesus has many names in the Bible. Can you think of some of the names of Jesus? Jesus is called Alpha and Omega. He's called Ancient of Days, Anointed One, Bread of Life, Bridegroom, Bright and Morning Star, Emmanuel, I Am, Lamb of God, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Light, Mighty God, Morning Star, Good Shepherd, Resurrection and Life, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of Righteousness. And each, each of these names tells us something unique about Jesus. You know, you can actually sit down and study the names of Jesus and learn a ton about Jesus Christ just by the very nature of studying his names. And here in Isaiah 9, we have four more names. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this morning, we come to this name, Wonderful Counselor. But before I unpack that, I want to give you a commentary on verses 1 through 5 so that we can be faithful to this text. What I'm going to do is kind of do the uh, sort of exposition of, of uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and kind of put the whole thing in context and then talk about Wonderful Counselor. Then the rest of the series, we're just going to concentrate on each of these names. But the book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's his record of what God told him to tell the kings of Israel and Judah. And so Isaiah calls the people of Israel to faith in God, and he warns them about the consequences of unbelief. Look down in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, Isaiah begins by describing the spiritual darkness of Israel. Notice the language he uses. He speaks about the gloom of darkness in verse 1. He talks about walking in darkness and being in a land of deep darkness. And all these images are pointing to a life filled with distress and trouble. These people, in fact, were so characterized by confusion and anguish that life itself had become dark and hopeless for them. Now, the immediate context of this passage is clear in that the region called Galilee, you can see that there in verse 1, is, is that region that stretched from the Jordan River uh, all the way up through to the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a very important area because, in fact, it was the major trade route from Egypt, uh, from Assyria to Egypt. And so it was a very, very prominent piece of land. And this is where God's people were. Very fruitful and strategic place. Well, anyway, about 733 B.C., Assyria conquered this entire land, uh, including all of Israel and the inhabitants that were in it. They were deported. And those who were left over somehow in the land were ended up uh, becoming slaves in their own land. It was a terrible situation. Uh, they were reduced to slavery. And so this is what Isaiah is referring to when he speaks about this darkness that had fallen on the land. But you need to know that Isaiah actually has a lot more to say about the darkness. He's not just talking about the darkness of being deported or the darkness of slavery, but he's talking about the darkness of, of the of world that is filled with spiritual problems. He's talking about a spiritual darkness. He's talking about something that has come over the land. And he says that the root problem is that God's people were looking to things other than God to satisfy them. How do we know this? Well, what clues us into that is the end of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. Isaiah eight nineteen, And uh, let's just read a few verses there. What does it say? It says this. 
Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings, they will tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? You must recall the Lord's instruction and the prophetic testimony of what would happen. Certainly they say such things because their minds are spiritually darkened. They will pass through the land destitute and starving. Their hunger will make them angry and they will curse their king and their God as they look upward. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. So I think it's very clear that Isaiah is talking about a lot more than slavery here. He's talking about some serious, dark, demonic, occultic, sick, twisted, messed up spiritual problems in Israel. And so clearly this darkness that's descended upon them is the darkness of unbelief. God has revealed himself through the law of Moses and the testimony of the prophets. He gave them light from heaven itself, an incredible gift to them. And yet the people were, that were led by their kings, they preferred, this is unbelievable, to consult the dead rather than the living word of God. And so this darkness is spiritual darkness and alienation from God. It's a fearful expectation of God's final judgment. It's a fear of being thrust out of God's presence in verse 22 into utter darkness where there is no light, but only distress and gloom and anguish. Now, according to the Bible, this is the condition of everyone who does not trust in God. Now, you may not be someone this morning who consults spirits or or the dead. I, I would dare say I've not met a person, probably personally, that has done that. So I'm sure that there's no one in here that has done that. But at the same time, you may be completely secular this morning. I mean, you may say, Jonathan, you know, I, I haven't given a single thought to the supernatural. All right? Not only is that weird, I'm not interested in Jesus or God or anything else. I'm just not interested in anything supernatural. But I want to tell you this morning that according to the Bible, if you're not trusting God, then you're seeking purpose and direction in life from created things rather than God. Now, that's, not an, that's a pretty obvious statement, but it has implications. The God who made you, the God who knows best how to direct your life, uh, you are not seeking. And Isaiah says that that decision of yours results in a condition of darkness. See, the world tries to allure us. It tries to pull us in to, the, 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 to an, a world of unbelief where we don't need to trust in God. We don't need to rely on him. That we can, we can do life on our own. We don't really need God. It tries to suck us in to this. And the world tries to put a good face on unbelief. But friends, really, it's just makeup on a corpse. You can't really put a good face on unbelief. God will judge those who love the darkness rather than the light. And anyone who loves darkness will be thrust, here's what the Bible says, into utter darkness. This is, this is alarming stuff. And that will be God's just response to our sins. And so if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that there's something worse in your life then discovering that your efforts to build a life on a faulty foundation were in vain, there's something worse than that. For 
not only will those attempts fail, not only will you walk around trying to find your place or figure out like, like how to live life in this dark world and you'll see that that fails, but there's something worse than that. You'll realize that those very efforts have earned for you the righteous anger of God, the God who made you, who knows you, who alone is the source of true light, meaning, and purpose. The principle is this, those who love the darkness will be given over to more darkness. Did you know that darkness actually in the Bible is the main image for hell? We often think about flames and fire, but you know really darkness has a more prominent place. The Bible talks about darkness, it's prominent. Utter darkness, anguish, and despair where there's no light, there's no joy, there's no freedom, there's no health, there's no kindness, there's no peace, there's no light at all. Here we are in the middle of the Christmas season when we're supposed to have joy and thanksgiving and experience celebration and all of this joy and excitement around Christ. But here's the thing is that if you're outside of Christ, there's no joy. I mean, like, yeah, you'll get a present and you'll open it up and you'll be excited for like a day. I mean, how quickly do kids get like tired of their gifts? It's an amazing testimony of sin. You buy them this great thing and you're like, man, they're going to be so excited. And they rip the package open and they they pull it out and they're like, like pump, man, for like two days. And then they're like, "I, I want a new toy. It's just how we are. Adults are the same way. We get tired of our toys. And so we seek more toys, but they never satisfy us. Well, friends, I understand that this is bad news that I'm giving you this morning. It's certainly not a popular message, but I have to be faithful to you as a pastor. This is what the God of the Bible says. Thankfully, though, he doesn't leave us here. There's good news. There's great news. In fact, it starts here in verse 3. The good news of Christianity is that we don't have to walk in the dark anymore. We don't have to be stuck in a world of darkness God has caused his light to shine. We see this in verse 3. God is going to reverse the darkness of sin and unbelief. He will cause a great light to shine. Notice this language, and dawn in the world. God's desire is that we no longer experience the anguish of gloom, but that we experience real joy. Joy that is profound. That is the point of the incarnation. Friends, that's the point of Christmas. Look at verse 3. It's like the joy that you feel on a Christmas morning when you, before you open the presents or the joy of victory when you know you get to divide the spoils or it's the joy, notice the language he's using here. It's the joy of vindication. He's talking about battle and enjoying the spoils of victory. Ultimately, it's a joy, he says in verse three, in God himself. God's people are rejoicing in him because he has increased their joy. God is our ultimate source of joy, and we experience joy in him. And so far from being a sour religion of rules, friend, Christianity is fundamentally about human beings being brought into the joy of knowing God and being loved by him. Perhaps you've always sort of avoided becoming a Christian, uh, you know, out of fear that it would drain all the fun or sap all the fun out of life. But I'm sorry if you've been told that. Because you've been sold a very false message. Christianity is a beautiful life of so much joy and happiness. To wake up 
in the morning and to know I don't have the wrath of God hanging over my head. Like that's enough to get me excited. To wake up in the morning and to know that all of my sins have been wiped away. That they are as far as the east is from the west. That I no longer am accountable for those sins in the sense that I will be condemned by them. I have been forgiven. I have been released from the payment of those sins. Jesus has covered it. So I get to wake up in the morning already like super excited and happy because my sins are forgiven. And that's just the start of it. Then I get a relationship with Jesus. I get a walk with God. I can pray to him at any moment because Jesus has made access to the Father. So the throne is always open. Prayer is always available. God is always listening. Jesus is my friend. So I get a walk with him. And then I get the spirit working inside of me who's changing me and making me new and helping me not be so grumpy and not be so prideful and not be so angry and actually be able to have somewhat of a functional marriage because the spirit's at work. And then I get to come to church with you guys and worship Christ with you and celebrate with him and sing songs and rejoice. And then I get the privilege of being a missionary for Christ that I get to explore the world. I get to travel to India. I get to go across the street. I get to hang out with my neighbor. I get to share with him the gospel. And I see Christ begin to move in somebody's life. And somebody's life who's a drug user. And who's absolutely messed up. And their life is backwards. And Jesus comes in and changes them. And they become a new creation. And their cousins and aunts and uncles and parents. And the children are like, what in the world happened to that guy? I don't understand it. And he's like, it's Jesus. And we get to see that. Look, this is a great life. All right. Now, I'm not saying that the Christian life doesn't have struggle. Obviously, there's suffering involved. But anybody who has said that, you know, you know, becoming a Christian is going to sort of ruin your fun. I mean, what a sad representation of Christianity. I mean, that's not what it is at all. God has come to deliver us from our sin. Now, this deliverance that Isaiah is speaking about in verses 4 and 5 Uh, is beautiful. The prophecy here is focused on the nations. Look at the word nations. You'll see that. And, And we're a part of that. And so this deliverance is once and for all. And so certain is this deliverance that Isaiah tells them in verse five to take all their military equipment. This is really interesting. All right, take all your battle equipment, your swords, your shield, whatever else they had in ancient times, your chariots, take all that stuff, you know, put it in a big pile, and sort of use it as fuel for fire because you're not going to need you're not going to need it anymore because the victory is won and I'm winning it for you. Like you can put down the sword, put down the shield and use all that stuff for fire. Isaiah is saying that there's an end of war itself because he sees deliverance from sin and Satan's rule. Let me ask you this question, when did the first war begin? It actually began in the garden of Eden began when Adam and Eve fought over the first sin that spoiled everything since that moment. Since that very moment, the human race has been one sad testimony of human beings hurting one another. And what Isaiah sees is the end. This is awesome. Listen, the utter eradication, the abolition of sin and Satan itself and all of its consequences. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, please understand that Christianity is not a coping mechanism. Like Christianity is not sort of like, how can I sort of help myself therapeutically to have a better life in the midst of like bad things that happen? 
And nor, hear me, nor is it a program for moral improvement. Like, how can I just be a better person? Like, those are wrong categories. It's not Christianity. It's not a moral improvement program. And it's not some therapy to help me feel better. Christianity is about understanding that the problem of evil begins with the evil in my own heart. And that what I need and every other person in the world needs is to be free from that cruel bondage inside. Christianity is the message that God will defeat sin and the sin inside me and bring its tyranny to an end so that I can actually stand up and say I'm free from my sin. That's Christianity. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Christmas is about. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, one question has been asked again and again and again. And that question is this, where, oh, where can I find hope? You've asked that question. How many times have you asked that question in your life? And the thing that that the Bible declares, which is so important for us to understand, is that hope is a person. The amazing reality, this radical claim that there's no other place that hope can be found You can't actually be serious and think, knowing yourself as you do, that you can find hope in yourself. You can't actually be serious knowing the people around you and how they are flawed and think that you can actually find hope in another person or a circumstance or a situation. No, friends, hope rests on the shoulders of one little boy in Bethlehem and his name was Jesus. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, do you see why it's important to understand the context? Because now, verse 6 feels powerful. Because if this world is that jacked up and that messed up, people are praying to sort of dead spirits and, and we're all so twisted and messed up. You think, man, I, and we got to have some hope. Here comes Jesus on the scene in verse 6. And we see these wonderful names of Jesus. And here, here's an interesting thing I was thinking about is that there's an amazing way in which each of these titles corresponds to the damage that sin does to us. Wonderful counselor. All right? Think about that for a second. Why do we need a, what do we need a counselor for? Does anybody need a counselor? Here's why. Because sin has reduced us all to fools. We all need counseling. Like, your pastors need counseling. Everybody needs counseling. Think about the one of the tragic consequences of sin. Because, because of sin, what happens is our whole view of life is distorted. We see the world inside out and upside down. And we need counseling. And so the passage is actually teaching that wisdom isn't first an outline. And wisdom isn't first a book, but wisdom is a person. And his name is Wonderful Counselor. Now, what does that name mean? Well, let me just sort of start with this idea that Jesus is our counselor. All right? We're, we'll get to the wonderful part in a minute. But when you think of a counselor, you know, some of you may have like kind of bad images in your mind. You may have an image of sitting uh, sort of awkwardly in a chair next to a person that you don't really know you know, spilling your guts and telling him everything. And the whole time you're thinking, this guy doesn't even know me and he doesn't love me. So this is really awkward. Maybe you're thinking of a situation like that. 
Uh, and, then, and then on top of that, you're paying this person. <laughs> you're paying a guy that doesn't love you or know you to spill your guts to him. And I, we've been there. We've been in those situations. And that's not wrong. I'm just saying it's sad that like people have to go to that length to get some help. That's what the church is for. That, that is the, that's what the body of Christ is for. We're called to care for one another. Gospel community groups. Listen, we believe that people grow best not in rows, but in circles. We believe people grow best not in buildings, but in houses. And that's why we want to put a premium on gospel community. It's, it's, it's crucial. I want to encourage you guys that if you're not a part of a gospel community group, that you just say, look, that's one of my goals for 2015. We are going to get involved in one. We're going to plug in. Here's the thing. Develop transparency. Can you share your sin with other Christians who know you and love you? Are you willing to open your life to them? Are you willing to say, man, I, I want to get closer to you guys this year. I want to begin to open my life. And when I'm having struggles, I want you all to help me and counsel me and give me soul care. All right. You want pastoral care. That is, that is constant. We all need it. We need pastoral care. And shepherding does not just come from pastors. It comes from one another as we care for each other's souls. And you'll get that on a consistent basis on a weekly or at least bi-monthly basis if you join a gospel community group. But you've got to be willing to be vulnerable and open yourselves up. And what a great example for our kids. I mean, to be sitting there in a gospel community and begin to share your sin and your struggle, and your kids say, you know what? My mom and dad, when I was a little kid, they always confessed their sins, and they always sought for help, and it teaches so much uh, to those children. So I just commend that to you. Anyway, the idea of counsel in Scripture is not really a person that just listens merely, but it's a person who speaks. A good counselor is a person who knows how to live life wisely. Now, Jesus is not just any old counselor. It says he's a wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word translated wonderful here is the word pele. And pele uh, literally means to marvel. It means a wonder. It means supernatural. And so Exodus chapter 15, 11 says this. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing pele, doing wonders. This word pele is used 54 times in the Old Testament to describe the supernatural acts of God. And Isaiah uses it in chapter 28 and 29 to describe God's supernatural work of changing human hearts, which is his greatest work. So Jesus is a supernatural counselor. Okay, that's the idea here, which, by the way, is a wonderful thing. So it's not wrong to call him wonderful counselor, just so long as you know what's sort of packed into that word wonderful. He's a supernatural counselor. He's altogether powerful and supernatural. His wisdom, hear me, is endless. His counsel is eternal. He is the perfect counselor with an infinite knowledge and understanding of all things. He is extraordinary. He is marvelous. He is an infinitely good counselor. And he does things that no one else can do. Does anyone need that in their life? I do. I mean, here's the point, okay? Is that the wisdom of Jesus Christ applied to your life is like nothing else. It's supernaturally insightful. You can't get it from any other source. It's universally above all other wisdom. Christ is all we need. And that's the main message we have to preach to ourselves daily, is I've got to get up in the morning and say, you know, it's true. Christ is all I need. Do I believe that? 
And we need to live the kind of lives that other people say, hey man, that guy right there, he believes that Christ is all he needs. And it's obvious. And we point people to Jesus. Listen, there are marriages that need to be raised from the dead, so to speak. There are wayward children that need to be brought back to life, spiritually speaking. There are dysfunctional families that need to be healed and restored and reconciled. The greatest problem of all is that sin has separated us from God and we need to be reconciled to him. So people, whether they know it or not, are looking for Jesus. Someone who can actually do something with the circumstances of their life. And this is especially important for the local church. Broken people don't come here to church to see you or to see me. They come here because they want to see Jesus. They're looking for someone that can actually do something with the broken parts of their life. And God's presence is what we so desperately need. I, I hope you understand that the special felt presence of God is not something we can just take for granted. Like that doesn't just happen automatically. Just because we show up at church, we cannot expect that God will just move in power because we just show up. We sort of lethargically come in here. We just kind of drag ourselves in. We're not prayed up. We're not thinking. We're not pursuing God. We're not seeking him. And we just kind of plop down on the chair and we expect God to show up in power. It doesn't happen that way. Like we have to pray and seek God's presence and his power to move among us. And what an important thing that is for us. This has to be sought on our knees, has to be pursued, has to be prayed over with a longing heart. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was at Starbucks and I was ordering my favorite hot drink, which is a cafe Americano. And as I went up to order it, uh, the barista said, uh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, but uh, our machines are broken. At which point I thought I need to go to the crim. <laughs> But the machines are broken, and I'm thinking, Starbucks, I mean, how are your machines broken? But I mean, both, both of them, and this is Starbucks, and you're supposed to have hot drinks. And actually, this guy says, believe it or not, he says, oh, man, that's nothing. I was at Burger King, and they were out of burgers. <laughs> how, do you ha- how do you Starbucks and no hot drinks, at Burger King, no burgers, and here's the thing, is that... That, that's absurd to think about that. But what's even more absurd is to come to church and to gather with God's people and to know that the one that we have come to worship does not show up because we are here for the wrong reasons or our hearts are messed up. Our hearts are far from him. Listen, we are called to steward God's presence through prayer and humility and pursuit. And that's not just our job as pastors, but that's your job as members. We should never settle for gathering, for a gathering where we've all come together and everyone has shown up. Except for the one that we're all looking for. And people are coming to church and they're looking for Jesus. And, all, and our responsibility is to roll out the red carpet for God's presence to show up dragging ourselves into church and, 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 not, and, and not coming hungry and not praying and not anticipating God to move among us. That is not the right heart and attitude. We need to ask and pray that God would do the exact opposite. We come hungry. We come prayed up. We come anticipating. We come excited and we ask God to come and move because we want people to have a close encounter with God when they worship him. And that's on our minds. And, and you know what? Honestly, that's what shapes why we do some of the things we do. Because we want people to have a close encounter with God. It shapes the way we, we do things. It shapes the way we preach. It shapes the way we orchestrate worship. And everything is, is we, are, we are so desperately in need of God's presence. 
people are in need of this. Well, they're in need of a touch from someone, not just a Pharisee who can give them words or who can talk a nice game, but someone who can actually help them in the midst of their, who can sympathize with their weaknesses and who can actually in his deity fix the very problem that he sympathizes with. Well, let me close this way. The scriptures tell us that we serve a God that can handle every single need that anybody in this room has right now. He's a wonderful counselor. I mean, it doesn't matter how big your problem is or how unusual or how different you think that problem is. Christ has an answer. Okay, hear me this morning. In fact, he is the answer. From the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, we see that Jesus is the answer to, the, to it all. He is the wonderful supernatural counselor from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, Jesus is the bread of life. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's our guide. In Joshua, he's our conqueror. In Judges, he's our true guide. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our sovereign ruler. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of destroyed things, including destroyed lives. In Esther, he's our courage. In Job, he's our timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the end of the matter. In Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he's the cry of Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the call to turn from sin. In Daniel, he's the friend in the fire. In Hosea, he's the, f- the forever faithful. In Joel, he's the spirit's power. In Amos, he's the strong arms that carry. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he brings revival. In Haggai, he restores that which is lost. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness rising up with healing on his wings. And that's just the Old Testament. What an awesome God we serve. And just in case you weren't clear on this, Jesus is everything you need. So here you stand on the threshold of 2015. Big decisions will be made in your life. You guys are going to be making life-changing decisions. And you cannot afford to be making those decisions without a clear word from a miraculous counselor. And that's who he is. He's beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Psalm 32, eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. And here's how I end. I just have to ask you this question. You know, everybody can't call him wonderful counselor. Can you call him that? Can you call him wonderful counselor? You know, I don't know. I don't know your heart. I don't know your spiritual condition this morning, but I challenge you to think long and hard about that. Because he's not a wonderful counselor for you this Christmas unless you've embraced him and all of his ways in your life. Are you resting in him? Are you letting him direct your family, direct your finances, inform your parenting and shape your future? To embrace Jesus as your counselor is to, is to turn away from yourself. It's choosing to follow him. It's, it's, it's coming. It's, people don't want to give up their quest for supremacy, but here's the point. Write in your letter of resignation. Resign as the chairman of the board of your own heart. 
and give yourself to Jesus as the wonderful counselor. And I promise that if you do that, if you decide that you no longer want to be the boss of your life, you will get to a better place in this life. Friends, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Remember those four G's? God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for happiness and satisfaction. Now listen, to bend the nail over on that point, I'm going to show you a testimony of a girl who came to the conclusion that Jesus is good and that she doesn't need anything else. Let's watch this.